All right, if you have uh, your worship folder there and you want to follow along, flip over there to page 10, because in just a moment we're going to read from uh, Genesis chapter 28 together. And before we do that, though, let me just sort of uh, lead us into this passage. We, uh, we're in a series this year where we're working through, as we were last year, the book of Genesis and also the book of Romans, and we're using them as conversation partners to help us to get a, a handle on what is the whole story of the Bible and how does it all fit together? And as we've been <clears throat> working our way through the book of Genesis, I always like to remind us, and it'll be particularly important to remember this, this this week, is that this is the first book that Moses wrote for God's people on their way from Egypt to the promised land. That would have been the original audience who would have first read this book. And two weeks ago, we saw that uh, this book, uh, particularly when you get to Abraham, God says, uh, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And then we came to Isaac, and a couple weeks ago, we saw that that same promise of blessing was given to Isaac. And what I want you to notice here is that this book is a good news book built on God's promises to bless his people, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we saw a couple weeks ago that Isaac received that blessing, that it was for him too. Uh, But last week, after looking at Isaac's family uh, with him and, and Rebecca and Esau and, and Jacob, it's a pretty dark story. And we try to wrestle with the fact that if you just looked at this family and what was going on, it doesn't feel like or read like or sound like much good can come out of this story. And as we enter in and keep looking at uh, the story in Genesis and what God is doing, I, I want to give you a, a really a pastoral tip, that when you come across sections in the Bible that just are super dark, and there are plenty of those, it's very easy to really get focused on the characters, which are important, but yet to miss, where is God in the story? And the reason I say that is because if we, if we only look at the characters, and we only look at the story kind of on a horizontal level, It's pretty dark and hopeless. But when we begin to look for God, especially where the story is darkest and perhaps the most hopeless, that's actually where we begin to discover where life and hope can emerge. And that's where we really need to see God in the story. Because truth be told, that's where we need to see God in our own lives the most. So let me read for us as we pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 28 where the story really now shifts from Isaac and Rebekah and even to a great degree from Esau, though he'll show up again later. It really shifts and Jacob now becomes the main figure that carries the story along. So we'll pick up here in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. 
And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we are. We're picking up this story. And we're picking it up in the story of Jacob as he is headed from Beersheba to Haran. And I want you to have a sense of why is he doing this? Why is he going from Beersheba to Haran? If you were with us last week, the end of the story was that he had stolen the blessing that his older brother Esau was to get from his father Isaac. And Esau was so angry that he was plotting his younger brother's death. He just was waiting for his father to die and then he was going to kill his younger brother. And Jacob's mother hears of this, Rebecca, and she directs Jacob to leave, to flee, to go to her brother's house, Laban, in Haran. And so, here we are. We, we are brought into the story where Jacob is leaving Beersheba, and he's heading to Haran. And to give you a sense of what's happening here, This is a really long journey. According to at least our best understanding of where these two locations are, Haran and Beersheba are about 600 miles apart. So think from here to Chicago, from here to Dallas. And you're making this journey on foot or maybe on camel. But it's long and it's slow and it's dangerous And the interesting thing about the story we're looking at today in Genesis 28 is that despite how long this journey is, 
and how much time it would take Jacob to make this journey, the only details we get about this long, dangerous journey are in these verses we're looking at this morning. These are the only details that the narrator gives us, and it is a momentous moment where Jacob encounters God. And actually, we're going to see another momentous moment later on in the story when Jacob is leaving Laban after 20 years serving his uncle, and he's headed back to meet his brother Esau, whom all he knows about his brother Esau is he wants him dead. Jacob's life is bookmarked by these two great moments of encountering God. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this encounter that Jacob has with God, where God meets Jacob. And the first point we're going to look at is going to be the in-between, where God meets us. The second is going to be the presence of God, why God meets us. And then third, the overlap of heaven and earth, how God meets us. So where God meets us, why God meets us, And how God meets us. He meets us in the in-between. Why God meets us is because of his presence and promises. And then how God meets us is where heaven and earth overlap. So first, let's look at the in-between here. And where God meets us. Again, verse 10. Jacob has left Beersheba and he's on his way to Haran. So here he is. He's in the in-between. These two places. And when he looks back... What does he see? What does he know? His older brother is plotting his death. And when he looks forward, what does he know? Not a lot. He's sent to Laban, hopefully to find a wife. But as we know from the story, this looking forward for Jacob is an unknown life with an uncle he's never met. And what we discover is that, in fact... Laban deceives Jacob and takes advantage of Jacob. He changes his wages, I think it's like 10 times. And Jacob experiences in Laban's house the very things he has done back home. Where Jacob has been deceptive and manipulative and coercive. And he's on his way to a life of difficulty and struggle but he's in between right now. And I want you to realize again why I said, I keep reminding us of this, that this book is written to God's people on the way to the promised land. This book is written to people who are in between. So when God's people have left Egypt and are on their way to the promised land, if they were to look back, what are they facing? They are facing 400 years of slavery. They can't go back, despite the fact that they want to go back. Going back to Egypt is nothing but death, continued suffering and struggle. But looking forward, on their way to the promised land, what do they see? An occupied land of enemies, people of very different beliefs and practices, then they are called to believe and to do as God's people. They can't go back, and they have to keep going forward. 
But whether they look backwards or forwards, there's fear and there's unknown in both directions. And Paul, interestingly, in Romans chapter 15, he writes this. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So I want you to think about this. Here you have Jacob, who's in the in-between. It's written to God's people on their way to the promised land who are living in the in-between. And we learn from the New Testament that this story is written for you and for me and our experience of living in the in-between. And I wonder this morning as you sit here, when you look backwards in your life, do you see failures? Do you see hurts? Do you see regrets? Or when you look forward in your life, are there fears of the unknown? Are there joys that you perhaps hope for and sorrows that you hope that you don't experience? You see, what I want you to see in this story is that it's written for people like you and me who are in the in-between. And what I want you to know is that this is where God meets you. He meets you in these places where no matter where you look, backwards or forwards, when both of those hold out fear and the unknown and uncertainty and wonder, and it's not pleasant, (coughs) that's where God meets you. And in fact, it's in these in-between that we discover why God meets us. And it's the presence and promise of God. Why does God meet Jacob here? And why does the narrator include this encounter with God? Why does he give us these details in the midst of Jacob's journey? And first of all, look here in verses 13 and 14. The first reason that God meets Jacob is that he wants to reaffirm his covenant promise to Jacob. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Remember, God made these promises to Abraham. And he says, it's through your offspring that the nations will be blessed. And we saw Isaac receive those same promises. And here we see, despite Jacob's behavior, despite the fears perhaps he's facing, and the unknowns of his future, God gives him these same promises. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the east and to the west, the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What are you supposed to see here about God? God is the same in this story as he has been in Isaac's story and as he was in Abraham's story and as he was at the very beginning of the story. But then I want you to see here the second thing. God makes the same promise to Jacob here. But in verse 15, it gets personal. God says, 
I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back. This, in fact, is the first time, the first person in the Bible who receives the promise, I am with you. I will be with you. Jacob is the first one who receives this promise in the scriptures. But then secondly, notice, not only is God with him in his present situation, in this rocky, stony, dark place, in the middle of nowhere, in the midst of Jacob's past, which is nothing but death staring him down, and Jacob's future, which is entirely unknown. God says to him, I am with you. And then he goes on and he promises protection. He says, I will keep you wherever you go. And you should hear in this Psalm 121. And I would tell you uh, later today, go read Psalm 121 in light of this passage where God says to Jacob, I will keep you wherever you go. Because in Psalm 121, again and again and again, God says, I am your keeper. The Lord is your keeper. He is your guardian wherever you go. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you face. And in verse 3, there's future hope and confidence when God says, and I will bring you back to this land. I'm with you. I will go with you wherever you go. And I will bring you home. Now, I want you to hear in this, it's part of the reason why we read Psalm 23 earlier. You know, um, verse 6 of Psalm 23 doesn't get enough uh, airtime. So we're going to give it a little bit right here. Psalm 23, verse 6 says this, Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you know if the promises that God is making to Jacob here are taking root in your life? One of the ways you can tell is that verse 6 of Psalm 23 becomes your confession of faith where you become convinced that God's goodness and his mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Think about that. Wherever you go, what is following you? What is coming after you? God's goodness and his mercy. And where do you lay your head? Where do you call home? Psalm 23, verse 6 says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if we were to step back from this a little bit, what's another way to think about these promises and what God is saying to you? Paul would put it like this, that the good work that God has begun in your life, he will bring it to completion. I am with you. I will go with you wherever you go and I will bring you home. Now put this in the context of the whole story of the Bible. Think about creation. 
sin and rebellion and disintegration. Think about God's promises that we're talking about right now. And then God's great work of redemption in Jesus. And what's bound up in that great work of redemption is the hope of a new heavens and a new earth. See, we live in the in-between right now. And here God is saying to us, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you home. So, clearly God wants you to know that he is with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you. But here's the question that I want us to think about as we move towards the overlap of heaven and earth is, how does Jacob's experience become your experience? Because my guess is none of us have had a dream like this. And to be honest, you shouldn't expect a dream like this. And I want to show you why. Because here, how God meets us in this story, how God meets Jacob in this story, we have something better than this dream. But in this dream, we get a tip. We get a clue of how God meets us. And first of all, what I want you to see here is that this story, when God shows up and he meets Jacob... We get a a key principle about Christianity, and it's this, that Christianity is not about how we get back to God. Christianity is all about how God makes his way to us. And think about this. Here, Jacob, the story describes that it's dark, it's a nameless place, it's so uncomfortable, all he can do is find a rock to put his head on. And God finds him there. God meets him there. God shows up here. He initiates with Jacob. He reveals himself to Jacob. And here in verse 12 when it says, Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder, or as some translations, the stairway. This is where I actually think maybe Led Zeppelin has it right the stairway to heaven, it's just really like an ancient Near Eastern structure that has a stairwell that's going around it as it reaches up to heaven. And you ought to be thinking right now, we've heard about a tower like that. It's the Tower of Babel, where humanity, in its pride, tried to create a stairway to heaven. And it didn't work. But here, we see a divine stairway. And what do we see on it? But angels ascending and descending, going back and forth. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot that we could say. But think about the most basic idea of an angel in the Bible. If you were to translate that term, an angel is a messenger in the most simple way. What is God doing In this dream, God is opening up a line of communication that is completely uninhibited. There is no obstacle, there's no barrier, there's back and forth communication and relationship and communion. This is where heaven and earth overlap. And in fact, this is where Jacob is blown away and he says, This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. 
And see, I, what I want you to see here is that Jesus takes this story and he applies it to himself at the end of John chapter 1. That he is this stairway, this ladder, that Jesus is the intersection of heaven and earth. Which is why I want you to see we have something better than a dream. In the middle of nowhere, with your head on a rock, we actually have in Jesus a person, the mediator, the perfect, unencumbered, clear revelation of God in the flesh where heaven and earth overlap. And what does that mean for us? What this means is Jesus has lived the in-between life. Jesus knows what it is to look backwards and to see nothing but people betraying him, deceiving him, misunderstanding him, seeking his death and destruction. And he understands what it means to look ahead and to be terrified but what lays in his future. Knowing that he must go to the cross and to die a painful, unjust death, Jesus understands and has lived the in-between life. He has lived and knows the in-betweenness that you sit in today. And because of Jesus... Because he's entered in, he's lived the in-between. He is the overlap between heaven and earth. And he did it for you. You can be sure that these words, I am with you, that I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you home, are for you. And there is nothing that can prevent God from being faithful and committed to you. Not even death itself can keep God from being faithful to his promises to you. Now, because of this story and because of the gospel, I want you to think with me for a moment. If this is true... What might be new possibilities for you? What might be some new possibilities that are now open to you in your life that this story makes possible? And to answer that, I want you to look here with me at the the impact of God showing up in Jacob's life, on his life. So look here, verse 16 to 22. There's two things we see. In verse 16 through 17, Jacob wakes up and he says, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. And and really that phrase there, I didn't know it, is much more self-indicting. It's much more like, surely God is in this place and I cannot believe I missed it. Now, I find that bizarre because... There's virtually nothing about the way the writer describes this place that would have indicated it, that this is God's house. It's this nameless place. It's dark. It's stony. 
And yet, this encounter with God brings Jacob to this point of absolute awe-inspired worship. In other words, what transforms and changes your present circumstances? It's the God who shows up, who says, I am with you, I will keep you, and I will bring you home. Now, just think about this for a moment. The new possibilities that are now open to you because God is a God who enters into your life, who seeks you out, who finds a way back to you. What that means is grace opens our eyes to see what we could not see before. Grace changes how we see our present situation. And remember, Jacob fears death in the past. He fears the unknown in the future. But notice what he says. Verse 17, actually, the narrator says, he was afraid. His past fears, his future fears, are now displaced by the fear of God. And this is a question for all of us. What is the one kind of fear that can bring contentment and joy in the midst of all the other fears in your life. The only thing that can do that is the fear of God. Which isn't this idea of he's, he's we're, we're you know, cowering in, in a corner and we're terrified. It's that he is bigger and better and more awe-inspiring and amazing to you than anything else in your life. What about him can create that kind of fear? Nothing but the cross of Jesus can do that. And so, if you find yourself like, yeah, okay, I've heard people say this, but it just doesn't do it for me. I don't find myself fearing God. What can you do? The only thing I have for you is you need to spend time looking at Jesus looking at his life, his death, his resurrection. What's the second thing, though, we see here? Jacob experiences a radical change of heart and commitment. In verses 18 to 22, Jacob sets up a a stone, a pillar, to indicate this place where this encounter happened. And then he makes this vow, this promise to God. And it ends with this very interesting phrase where he says, and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth of it. Now, the one thing I want you to to, to grapple with from, from what we see here is to think about Jacob so far. What has he done in his life? Twice. Twice in his life, he has grasped for something that didn't belong to him. He stole his brother's birthright and he stole his brother's blessing. But what do you see here? Jacob is being transformed from a grasper to a giver. And in fact, Jacob's name is sometimes translated as he who takes by the heel or he cheats. Here's what I want you to see. This encounter with God These promises of God fundamentally change the loyalties of Jacob's heart 
So instead of being this self-concerned, self-centered, grasping individual, he now is being transformed. And we're going to see this over the next several chapters. Jacob is being changed from the inside out to become a generous giver. Now, as moving and as powerful, I think, as this story is, like I said before, you have something better than this dream. You have God's beloved son who says to you and has proven to you, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you home. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this story and we pray that wherever we find ourselves today living in this in-between existence, we pray that these words, as they come to us through Jesus, would find uh, new traction and take deeper root in our hearts and our lives such that we would fear you more than anything else, that we would find great confidence and protection and hope in your word, and that we would find the very loyalties of our lives shifting away from the things that we feel like we have to grasp for or hold on of and and not lose, and instead you would change us into people who are givers, who are so secure and solid in who we are and what you've done for us in Jesus that we can live lives open-handedly towards you, towards our families, towards our neighbors, towards our city, and towards your world. And we pray all of of this in Jesus' name. Amen.